Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, there was a time uh, years ago, I was at a cabin. I think I went for two nights by myself uh, to kind of do some, do some soul work. Uh, this is back when I lived in the Louisville area, and there was a guy who let me use his cabin, cabin for free, free 99. And uh, I was working through a book. Uh, I didn't mean to make this an advertisement for the book. It was called The, the Relational Soul. You can take a note on that and read it if you, if you, if you, and hold on tight because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get you. Uh, but this, this book was kind of wor- working through the aspects of our soul and how we relate to God. And I was uh, posted up in this, uh, I should have got a picture of this because they're so comfy and I need to find one. But it's like a, it's like a hanging hammock chair. So it's not like a hammock where you're flat. It's kind of got like armrests, but you're hanging on, I was hanging on the spring, second floor deck overlooking a river in uh, southwestern Kentucky. Uh, it was beautiful. The sun was rising. And, uh, and I was just spending a, a, some extended time in prayer. This is maybe like the, 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 the first morning, full morning I was there. And while I was doing this, I had, I had this really sweet experience with Jesus. It was, uh, it, it, it was like I could picture him as I was just kind of laying there, closing my eyes, that he was with me. He was holding my hand and walking me down a hallway and as I went down the hallway, all these doors were open. And I look inside, and there were these different memories, these different moments of my life, these experiences that I had. And, uh, and they weren't fun. They were some of, you know, my deepest shame, my worst moments of sin or deepest embarrassment or things that made me most angry. And it was just, there was no hot new take or brand new revelation that I hadn't experienced, but that I hadn't heard before, but it was an experience of Jesus with me, showing me that he, he had been with me in those moments. And that as I reflected on the fact that the hand that was leading me down this hallway had a hole in it because he died for all those sins that I had experienced. And, and kind of at the end of the hallway, I, it was just a, a, a bigger door opened. And it was just this place of belonging and love and joy and how, how God redeemed all those little moments that were along, in the doors along the hallway. And that, sorry if that's a little too like, you know, mystical or whatever for you, but it was just a, a sweet, sweet moment. One of the just kind of like keystone moments of my time with Jesus where I saw myself more clearly, more, I saw more the depth of my sin. And then, and then I saw Jesus, the, the crucified King, uh, more clearly what he died for me uh, uh, for. Like what, what were the things that Jesus, had, that, that I did that put Jesus on the cross and then the things that had been done to me, things that had made me mad or ways that people had hurt me, that how that had been dealt with on the cross. There's mercy and justice on the cross. And I, I tell that story because the, this image we get of the blind man here at the beginning of our text is, is kind of an image I hope that we just kind of put a pin in for the whole rest of our series through the Gospel of Mark. This idea of Jesus leading us by the hand uh, taking us away. 
and caring for us. And it's, it's, a, it's a thing where this is not some hot new take. You've been in church. I'm not, probably not going like, to unpack some brand new insight uh, that, that's going to change everything. But instead, I, my prayer is that it's an experiential thing where the, the grace of Jesus, his tenderness towards you, his love for you, his ability to heal you of hurts, of sin, of, uh, of habits that have wrecked havoc in your life, it, it become real to you. After spending months considering Jesus as the king, uh, in our series, Follow the King, where we see that he has all authority and he has the authority to call us as his apprentices, we now turn to see more fully what kind of king he is and what it truly means to follow him. We're calling the second half of this journey through Mark the, the King's Cross. The main idea of this half of the book is that you can't understand Jesus as king and as the Messiah and understand what his kingdom was about if you don't understand the cross. And we can't understand what it means to be his apprentices, what it means to follow Jesus, be a disciple in the, in the way that a, a brand new electrician would begin following a master electrician if we don't understand the cross. We, we know that he's the king and he has authority, but what he does with that authority is no king has done before. And we know that he calls us to follow him, to set up every aspect of our lives in order to be shaped and formed by his way of life, uh, the, the, the way of life that he died so that we could have uh, that, that he calls abundant or the life that is truly life. But following Jesus is, is a journey that's also this paradoxical downward ascent. Or on one level, especially in the eyes of broader society, following Jesus uh, looks like dying, looks like, feels like dying, looks like losing, looks like going downward. Following Jesus at times feels like death. It feels like giving things up or we are ourselves decreasing. It might feel more like a CrossFit workout or heart surgery rather than like a spiritual spa day. But again, Scripture says, and I believe with every fiber of my being, that following Jesus, even in this downward ascent, is the way to, to get what our hearts truly long for. And this passage that we're going to look at today is the, is the fulcrum of the book of Matthew, Matthew, or Mark, sorry, I know which one we're in. Uh, it, it, kind of the whole book hinges on this passage. And Mark, in his divinely inspired literary brilliance, gives us uh, th this story with the blind man. Um, and I think it's just so helpful to, to give us this, this little mini story that, that we can just enter in as we wrestle with what he's going to say in the rest of the book. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful miracle of compassion and healing. But more than that, Mark is using it uh, as a literary device almost as like a metaphor or a parable in and of itself. Uh, like it, it really happened. It's true. This did happen with Jesus. But more than that, he's showing it. He's, he's using it as a literary device to show us what's happening with the disciples. Because right before we get to this uh, Bethsaida, what's the last verse? Verse 21. He said to them, do you still not understand? And then we have this short story where just in these four or five verses, 22 through 26, we have the word, some variation of the word see eight times in the Greek. 
He's like, do you have ears but not hear, eyes but don't see? Do you still not understand? And then we get this healing story that is all about seeing. And the, the miracle is showing us, almost as a metaphor, what's happening with the disciples at this stage in their apprenticeship to Jesus. They're, they're moving from not understanding, total blindness, to this partial understanding. And then it's foretelling that eventually completing this journey through the gospel of Mark, that they will see everything fully, see things clearly. It's, it's a, to show us what is happening in the disciples' apprenticeship to Jesus. We'll circle back to it. So let's go to verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So from Bethsaida to the regions, the villages around Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles. Uh, And again, I just love pointing out how much Jesus walks, (laughs) and how much of discipleship to Jesus for these guys meant long, boring days on dusty roads, walking and talking. Preach that sermon another time. Couldn't help it though. And as they're walking and talking, he asked them the most important question, the most important question that you can be asked or that you could ask anyone, uh, who do you say I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi was an intense region, a tense place to ask this question because it was a, a, a place that was deeply, historically deeply steeped in paganism. Most famously, the god Pan, a god who was part man and part goat, who was kind of like the god over herding animals, sheep and goats and whatnot. Uh, the, he had a shrine there. And in more recent history, in Jesus's day, King Herod had sort of gentrified uh, Caesarea Philippi uh, it was kind of up on the hill along these cliffs, and uh, King Herod had kind of basically rebuilt it and renamed it Caesarea Philippi. Uh, first part honoring Caesar, who claimed to be the son of God, a divinely appointed ruler, and also Herod's son, <laughs> Philip. Uh, so it's like Philip, Philip's Caesarea is kind of what it means. So Herod's son, who had, he had appointed king over the region. You see what I'm saying here? We have this town that's named after a man who claims to be the son of God uh, and the man who is currently king over this region. region. And beyond that, one commentator said that uh, there, there were cliffs and mountains and carved into the side uh, of this would have been all these little shrines to all these other gods, like a strip mall for just all these random different gods. So it's a crazy, a crazy spiritual place. And it's in, in this place that Jesus asked the most important question, who do you say I am? But he doesn't start with that. First, he gets at what others are saying. Who, who do other people say that I am? Which is just on a teaching, conversational level, a great, a great strategy. You know, it allows people to enter into the conversation without having to, you know, put themselves out there, or expose what they really think. They, they can engage the question impersonally. And we see the answers swirling around. John the Baptist, back from the dead. That was, we know that was Herod um, who had killed John the Baptist and was weirded out by Jesus. Uh, Elijah, 
was uh, in the mindset of Jews at this day was, was like the most famous prophet because he was, he was the only one that what? Bible trivia. Didn't die. Yeah, it was good. I heard it. Yeah, he got caught up. Chariots of fire. Uh, and so that, you know, there's like, he's up there in the sky. He got caught up. He didn't die. Maybe he'll come back or, you know, just a general prophet. You know, maybe people are like, he's not Elijah, just some other prophet. Uh, but Jesus says, what about you? Engage the conversation. Let's get kind of a survey what the people are saying. But now who do you say that I am? And maybe if this is helpful uh, to contextualize it for our day and age, who, who is Jesus to you? I think it's a, a, a little bit more relational. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Um, who, who is Jesus to you? You think about like, who, who, is your who are your grandchildren to you? Or who, who is your spouse to you? You know, like when we're thinking in those terms, like the, the answer is very different than like the, the woman that I married so many years ago and signed a contract and, you know, live with or whatever. It's like, who is Jesus to you? And Peter confesses as sort of leader and spokesman for the disciple. He gets up and he gets it right. He, you're the Messiah. And we know that this was a good moment. From Matthew's account of this same conversation, Jesus is affirming, like, bless you, Simon Barjona, because this was not revealed to you uh, by human insight, but by God. It's a good moment in Peter's, Peter's walk with Jesus. Messiah literally means anointed one, and it was the term used throughout the Old Testament to describe kings. It's our term of royalty. And there were all kinds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the final king coming, the final Messiah, Mashiach, who would come, sit on David's throne forever, redeem and restore God's people, Israel. But they're pretty broad strokes. There's a lot of ambiguity about what this Messiah was going to do, how he would come, what he would be like, you know, would he be a military general, a political revolutionary? Uh, and through Israel's history and the cultural understanding of the coming Messiah, it morphed and changed based on circumstances, based on the history or, or, or whatever. Uh, the, the only thing that was really agreed upon was that he was coming and they were waiting for him. And so that's the breakthrough. Jesus or Peter confesses, like, you are the one that we've been waiting for. That's the confession. You are God's anointed person. Look what happens next. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside to rebuke him. So it's almost like Peter's confession, this, this acknowledgement, which is in, if you look at the disciples' contributions to the story of Mark right now, this is like the first time they've said something that's been like really good and helpful. Uh, and it's almost like in, in a video game, like this confession unlocks the next level, the next boss, the next challenge or whatever. And Jesus uh, is, okay, you see that I'm the anointed one. Now let me tell you what is next, what's going to happen to the Son of Man, and that is, there's suffering and rejection, and he will be killed and rise, and rise again. And Peter rebukes him. No, Jesus, look, you just said you're the Messiah. I just said you're the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the king who would come and rescue God's people. You don't get it. Suffering and death has nothing to do with making Israel great again and taking over everything and restoring all things. But what does Jesus say? Verse 33, 
When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Brutal. It was the worst of times and the best of times, or the best of times and the worst of times for Peter. You know, he, he got an answer right, finally. Uh, and then it fell, fell off quickly. But I think it's significant that Peter, in one level, he aces the quiz. Who do you say that I am? Oh, the Messiah. You're the anointed one or whatever. In the sense that he, he has the facts right, but his understanding of the facts are lacking. It's, this is exactly what the story with the blind man is showing. Like he sees partially, but it's still blurry and people still look like trees. It's vague. It's not clear. And now to speaking to those of us who would consider ourselves a Christian, a Jesus follower, who have grown up in the church, I want us to carefully consider Peter and what's going on here. Because I think for a lot of us, if we were to hand out a pop quiz, uh, we could probably get a lot of answers right about Bible trivia or theology. But we see here that even for a guy like Peter, who has spent two, two and a half years every day with Jesus, night and day, that he can... St- understand in part, but not see the whole thing. And why is that? Well, I have three reasons. Uh, three reasons why Jesus, and there, and there are also reasons why Peter misses it, and also why I think Jesus calls Peter Satan. And it's because it seems a little harsh, but stick with me. The three reasons are not knowing the scriptures fully, broken desires, and the influence of the culture. So in the Old Testament, there's lots of prophecies about this Messiah who would be victorious, who would restore and redeem Israel, uh, all these beautiful things. But the Old Testament also talks about a suffering servant. And the hyperlink for that is when Jesus tells them in third person, the son of man must suffer many things. It's a prophecy from Daniel that talks about the son of man coming and uh, and the entire theme of the Son of Man it has the throne-taking aspect and the redemption aspect, but he's a suffering servant that where one man would suffer and atone for the sins of the people. But which is more fun to talk about, especially if you're under Roman oppression and life is miserable. You, you want the victorious Messiah to come. It, we can it, it kind of blow past the suffering servant. It, the connection hadn't been made from the scriptures that the Messiah and the suffering son of man are the same person. An essential theme of the scriptures, a core teaching about who God is sending had not been fully embraced and integrated into the shaping of the Messiah. But, you know, think, Thank goodness we never do that, right? We never brush over things in Scripture we don't like or don't understand or that make us uncomfortable. False. You know, still, even after 10-plus years of studying the Scripture being like my job, I, I feel like I'm constantly unpacking Scripture and seeing things that I would kind of breezed over or just didn't have the capacity to dive into uh, or, or whatever. Which is why I think slow, meditative Scripture reading is just one of the core keystone habits of following Jesus. We have a, a little reading plan and some journals on our book table in the back. You can grab those for free. And I, it, this all kinds of reading scripture in any way is great. So cheers. Like if you're in the scriptures, 
wonderful. Uh, but I just want to highlight meditative scripture reading where you're reading not, not, not less time, but less verses. You're spending you know, the same amount of time you might spend in scripture reading four or five chapters, but on like five verses or 10 verses or whatever. It's because it'll, it, it just gives the Holy Spirit space to, to use the scriptures like a double-edged sword to, to dissect us and do the, do the heart surgery and let us wrestle with it. Like, it might just be me, but sometimes when I am reading something and I'm trying to just soak into one passage, I, I just, I don't get it or I don't like it or nothing's happening. So I just want to keep reading. I just want more content to just put before my mind to distract me. But there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of power that comes from just giving the spirit time, 20 minutes, five verses, see what he does, journaling out what you don't like, what your honest response is to it. So the point is that the fullness of Scripture be our baseline, that we, we don't run away from any parts that make us uncomfortable. We sit with them. We ask questions about them. We ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds. If you, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus in particular, uh, I would re- uh, recommend the Gospels, just spending time in the Gospels. My I was already in ministry at this point, but I spent a year reading through all four Gospels every month. Uh, I'd read one slowly and the other three quickly and then switch which one was slow. And uh, I'm not like prescribing that. I'm just saying it was a great experience for me. It, it changed my life. Even after going through seminary and preaching for years, like having that slow time in Scripture where they just began to saturate my mind changed so much. And, uh, and if you think about it, like if we're going to be fluent in Spanish— or, you know, become an optometrist or whatever. Like, you're going to spend a lot of time memorizing things, learning things, talking to other people, learning and studying the same things or whatever. And so why would Jesus, following Jesus, be any different? The second thing we see in Peter's rebuke of Jesus is his own broken desires. His own broken desires. Rooting, in, rooting ourselves in scriptures, we'll, we'll bring, bring this up. It'll expose and confront our broken desires. And I say broken desires, uh, there are a couple of different ways you could define it, but suffice it to say, it's meeting God-given desires apart from God. Like you see this back in the, in the Garden of Eden, where the, the things that drew Eve to the fruit were things that God could get, provide for her, but she tried to meet it on her own, reaching for the fruit. And I, and I say that there's some grace in this because I think all of our desires at their core were, are, are good, given to us by God, but sin and the lies of Satan twist them and distort them. Like it's not bad to want love, right? Of course, we're made by the God of love, but we will get twisted if that desire is broken to where we now want our girlfriend to satisfy our need for love or our grandkids to satisfy that desire apart from God. So Peter, as Jesus' kind of right-hand man, the spokesman for the disciples, you know, what, what might be the broken desire that he's going for that would make him resist this picture of the suffering servant, the suffering son of man? Well, if he's the second in command and Jesus rides to victory and is on his throne, then it's going to go good for him. He's going to have a cool new position and the new world order, uh, prestige, you know, everything that comes with that. And so he, he's not talking, trying to talk about some Messiah that's going to be killed, betrayed, and suffer. What would that mean for him? And it's just crazy, this journey 
towards the cross. In chapter 10, we have the disciples bickering amongst themselves, who's the greatest? And James and John, you know, uh, and their mom, which is weird, you know, asking Jesus for, you know, the, the right and left-hand spots and all this. And it, while he's going to Jerusalem, telling them plainly that he's going to be betrayed, suffered, and killed, It's like the disciples wanted significance, security of high position, the, the, the security of high positions, but rather than getting that significance and security from Jesus, from intimacy with the king, you know, they want it in the position or, or in these worldly benefits that come with a high position. Our sin nature breaks our God-given desires. And, and then when that happens, it, it, we can't receive Jesus on his terms as he is. You know, instead we, we kind of barter. Like, I'll follow Jesus if I can be safe and secure. I'm on team Jesus as long as my kids are healthy, making good choices. I follow Jesus as long as, you know, my, my uh, financial status is up and to the right with bigger and bigger barns of savings so that I can eat and drink and be merry. Now, the, the desire behind those things isn't bad in and of themselves. It's just where are we going to get those desires met? Because what we will come up against Jesus saying things like, if you uh, don't love me more than your kids, see, in one passage even says, if you don't hate your wife, mother, brothers, or kids, children, you can't be my disciple. Or in the bigger barns, God shows up and calls the person a fool because they were investing in the security of their abundance rather than being rich towards God. And it's going to step on our toes. The last thing we see in Peter is the cultural influence, how his worldview had been influenced and tainted by the, the, the general ethos of being a Jewish man in first century Israel, which was under Roman occupation and oppression. The, the pain of oppression, so acute that the prevailing understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to come as a military leader and lead a violent revolution to overthrow the Roman Empire, at least the part that was in, in Israel or whatever. There's a, a fascinating book I read a while ago, and my favorite quote of the book was, your emotions are your hermeneutic. And uh, I, I, it made me giggle uh, for a couple of reasons I can't talk about. But uh, the, the idea, hermeneutic is the seminary word for how we understand Scripture, how we draw out meaning from the Scripture. Uh, and, and so the, the idea is that when we are rich into our emotions, they influence how we interpret the scriptures. And so we see that the, the pain and the cultural ethos of uh, the pain of re repression being tainting Peter and not having any space. Like if that's the line you're thinking, if those are the scriptures you're thinking about, if that's what all your friends are talking about, if that's what you hear your dad, grow up hearing your dad talk about, uh, then it's going to be hard to hear about a suffering servant. I mean, you think about Peter pulling out a sword at the Garden of Gethsemane and hacking off someone's ear because he's thinking, this is it. They're coming with swords and clubs. I got a sword. The revolution is starting. <laughs> you know, and what does Jesus do? He heals the man's ear and goes without a fight. So these three things, that not knowing the scriptures, broken desires, and cultural influence are the precise components of spiritual evil. We, we had a working definition weeks ago when we were looking at the reality of demonic evil when we defined it as this. As the devil sows lies that appeal to the broken desires of our flesh 
that are normalized in a fallen world. I, I love this. This is from John Mark Comer. It's a, it's a working definition of demonic or spiritual evil. Like what the, the kind of one of the main key ways that our enemy operates in these three, these three enemies of our soul. The, the devil who operates primarily through sowing lies, uh, the appeal to desires that are, that are broken, that, that then um, get met apart from God. That's our flesh or sin nature. And then they're normalized in a fallen world which we see, you know, having just got out of Pride Month or whatever, it's normalized or even celebrated in a fallen world. And do you see how all three of those things are at work in Peter's rebuke of the man he just called the anointed one? How he had missed truths from Scripture and created space for lies that kind of twist the truth or obscure parts of the truth and his flesh desired power that was affirmed by the, the, the world around him. It's like, yes, get power and hack off ears. Uh, maybe, maybe go a little bigger than that, Peter, next time or whatever. But uh, that believed in military might in a violent revolution. That was, that, that was affirmed by the world Peter was caught up in how men think under demonic influence. And the scary thing is that's true for, for every single one of us who is not actively seeking to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, who does not have a plan in place to align ourselves uh, for resisting evil, the resisting lies, uh, through uh, resisting lies, the appetites of our flesh, and the normalization of sin in a fallen world. We like specific habits that are going to address that. To bring back a grid that I made uh, a few weeks ago where we fight lies with the truth of Scripture. We fight sinful desires of the flesh with practices like, uh, like fasting or generosity, giving money away or silence and solitude or fighting the world by uh, prior prioritizing deep relationships with other Jesus followers, where the, the community of God's people together becomes the society that normalizes behavior rather than the outside world. And all of this, if this sounds com complex or whatever, this is, this is what I mean when I think of discipleship. This is what I mean when I think of apprenticing to Jesus, where we, we have these, apprenticeship to Jesus moves us away from the realm of evil, from being influenced by Satan, keeping your mind on the people of men. And so my hope for this morning, uh, as, as we look at this scary passage from Jesus calling one of his disciples Satan, is that because we're going to talk more, we're actually revisiting this passage a little bit next week. We're going we're gonna to get, get into it. Uh, but as we, as we look at what's going on here in this question, who do you say Jesus is? My hope is that the picture of Jesus with the blind man kind of becomes like our, our stake in the ground. Like if it gets windy, it's just going to hold us down. If we get cr confused or uncomfortable, we just return to this image and put ourselves in the place of the blind man being led by the hand out of, Jesus, uh, out of the town with Jesus. Let me just read that passage again. I invite you to just close your eyes and put yourself in this blind man's shoes. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. 
Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. First, can we see Jesus holding a man's hand? He's blind, he can't see. Can we see Jesus desiring to connect with this man alone, away from the crowd, the noise, the distractions? What would it look like for you to allow yourself to be led away from the noise and the distractions, the crowd, whatever that looks like for you, the busyness, the constant dinging of your devices to just be alone with Jesus? When was the last time you were totally alone with no devices within reach? A couple barriers to this is one, it's intimate. It's vulnerable. Like, you know, it's like when the the kid, his parents are fighting and they're never in the same room, right? You know, in the same house, but never in the same room or whatever. Sometimes we avoid God. We're like in the same house, but we never just alone with him. And the, the other obstacle is that this requires us to be led, to feel our weakness, to embrace the fact that there's things we, we're blind, or at least we don't see things clearly. We need to be led by someone who does see it, Jesus. If some of us macho men are like to always have the right answer or always be happy and up, it can be hard to allow ourselves to feel that vulnerability to be led. What do we do with the spit? Isn't that weird? Well, I wish I had a better answer for you. Like some commentators say saliva had some medicinal uh, attributes or it was used in other kinds of healing things. So it wasn't like super clear. But I think what is clear, what is beautiful is that Jesus, our King, had a body that produced spit and could touch other bodies. Just like the physicality and presence of Jesus with this man. Sometimes I wonder if us church people, we reduce Jesus to like a theological idea or puzzle piece, you know, like he fits in the chasm between us and God, you know, as like a theological thing. I mean, I'm not knocking that display of the gospel. I'm just saying like, it's more than just filling in the gas, in, in the gap there. Instead, he's a person who touches, who has a body that produces spit, who can be with people. He's someone we can have a relationship with, who, who tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us, that, uh, that he'll be with us to the end of the age. But if he ascended to heaven, how is that possible? Well, through the Holy Spirit. Another Bible trivia question. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In our bodies. Your body is a big deal. Jesus had a body. You are a body. And if you are in Jesus, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the good news? Like when you are alone, if you are in Christ and you are alone, you are not alone. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why, this is why solitude can be so powerful. It's why solitude is not just, you know, Buddhist meditation because you are communing with God in a relationship. Now we have the whole fun fact that it didn't work the first time. Isn't that weird? Did Jesus run out of juice? It's like, got to just try a little bit harder for some extra healing oomph. Of course not. You know, we see Jesus waving his hand to do miracles from a distance, he, he, you know, casting out thousands of demons, 
raising the dead, calming a storm with a word, you know, it's not a question of power. Instead, just consider the relational effect of this progressive healing. Like the, the, the interaction and the relationship between Jesus and this man. Because I think it's a, it's a matter of progressive revelation that invites the man out into the conversation. Like when Jesus asks a question, what is he getting at? Like I think of when he, we'll see in, in the next chapter where there's a man with a demonized son who has seizures. And Jesus asks him, how long has this been going on? What's going on with that? Does Jesus really need to know that information? Well, it invites the man to speak and the man shares his heart. Jesus says, do you see anything? And now what happens? Well, the man has to answer. What's he going to do? How is he going to relate to Jesus here? It's a tender place. He's been led away alone from all that he's known or the people that he knows with a man that he doesn't know. He's at Jesus spit on him, which I think there's like some basis for that being not as weird to him as it would be to us, but still it's kind of strange. We have him touch his eyes. The, the, the part of his life that has been the source of the most pain, the most shame, that would have made him feel unclean, unworthy to worship God. The, the worst part of his existence has been touched by this strange man. And it, it only kind of worked. What will he say? Will he pretend that he's fully healed? This would be like the happy, clappy Christian. You know, like, it's all good enough. Yep, yep, I can, you know, I can see. They're, they're like trees, but they're pretty trees. It's, it's okay. Will he despair? No, it's just shadows. I'll never see again. I'll never fully see again. I'll never see the face of my children again. God must not love me enough to heal me. Maybe I'm, I'm not worth healing all the way, and this is just like all I can get. What does he do? He speaks simply and honestly to Jesus. He just tells Jesus the honest answer, the most true thing. I see people, they look like trees. And Jesus touches him again, and he saw everything clearly. My hope is that all of us, you and I, would have this experience with Jesus regularly, being led into the quiet, allowing him to touch us, allowing him into the parts of our lives, our stories, even our bodies that are the source of the most pain, the most shame. And we dwell on the fact that he's promised to be with us, that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in our bodies, that we're covered in grace. And so we can speak honestly to Jesus. You see in Jesus's questions, the answers that he gets are all over the place and often it don't make sense. But Jesus wants to hear you respond to him and speak honestly with him, unfiltered. When you get triggered by something you read in scripture or something that happens in your life or a memory that comes up, just tell Jesus plainly and honestly. The words coming up that we see in scripture is gonna, like, we're gonna talk about divorce, we're gonna talk about money, like there's some really sensitive things, you know, that might be triggers, you know, we're so sensitive to triggers here. And, and one, one counseling philosophy that I really like calls, calls triggers trailheads. They are journeys you can take with Jesus towards healing. Instead of ignoring them, repressing them or whatever, like, oh, that was a strong emotion. 
and you are invited to be led by the hand down that, down that path towards healing with Jesus. All of us, like Peter, we have lies in our minds, parts of scripture we've looked over, broken desires where we have strategies of meeting our needs apart from God and created Jesus in our own image. And all of us were permeated by a fallen society. We read news, we watch shows, the podcasts we listen to, our social media feed uh, that, you know, with racist friends from high school or, you know, whatever, you know, is, is on there, extreme outrage, like all this stuff influences us. And so can we come to Jesus and allow him to ground us, speak plainly to him and let him touch us? What does it mean to see clearly? I think the end of Mark's gospel, the, the final bookend to the question, who do you say this is, in, is in chapter 15, verse 38, or verse 37. When with a loud cry, Jesus on the cross breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It's the rest of the confession that Mark starts the gospel with. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here in our passage today, we see the Messiah, and we don't see the Son of God part, the anointed king, until we see that the king was exalted, not to a throne, but to a cross, not with a crown of gold and rubies, but a crown of thorns. Behold the king, the king who desires to take you by the hand, to touch you, to invite you to speak honestly, who so desires a relationship with you is that he would, he would allow himself to be nailed to a cross and suffocate in his own blood for you. And that brings us to communion. This is what we are proclaiming. This is what we are celebrating is that we see Jesus on the cross. We say he is our Messiah and he is the son of God. We come forward to partake this week. We're going to do it by coming forward where we'll go out to these side aisles and partake of a cup, uh, the cracker and the cup, uh, and be served by a brother or sister uh, and partake it and then go back to your seats down the, the middle aisle. But as you do this, consider yourself being led by the hand to the table by Jesus. I'm, I'm curious what, what's coming to mind right now in your life, in your story, what, what memories are coming to mind? What, might, what trailheads might Jesus want to take you down as we partake in communion together? Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.